KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim. This is KMTT and this is Ezubik. Today is Tuesday. Yom Shlishi, the Shabbat, 23rd day of Chodesh Shvat. And today's share will be given by myself. It's the weekly share in Problems in Medieval Jewish Philosophy. And today we will continue our discussion of Bayatara, the problem of evil which we started last week. After the shiur, I will be back, and I will continue in this case, with the Halacha Yomit. Last week, we began to discuss the problem of evil, and uh, we discussed some classic uh, approaches. Specifically, I elaborated on the approach of the Ramban. On one hand, the approach of the Ramban is classic, in the sense that he starts with what any discussion of the problem of evil in Judaism has to begin with, namely, tzaddik v'tov lo varalo, that suffering, the problem of evil in the world, is a response to sin. What I didn't mention last week, I thought it was obvious, but it is important to stress, is that this is based on a prior assumption that free will is a good because God could have eliminated all suffering by eliminating all sin and he could, he could have eliminated all sin by not granting man free will. So the Ramban's discussion of how evil begins with the assumption that he doesn't even think he has to defend what's known in the philosophic literature as the free will defense that evil and suffering in the world begins with man's free will and man's free will is a good thing even though it may and probably will be used to commit, to commit sin. The interesting point about the Ramban is that, of course, the Ramban realizes, as, as anyone in Jewish tradition has realized, is that there are cases of tzaddik veralo, of the righteous who are suffering, and we don't see the connection between sin and suffering in that case. The righteous or the innocent, children, etc., there are many cases where we find suffering that do, does not appear to be connected or could be connected to any possible sin. And the ingenuity of Ravan's approach was to widen the definition of sin in such a way as to include not so much punishment as necessary, necessary suffering. By widening it, he basically changed the equation. It's not punishment, it's not justice for crime, but suffering meaning atonement, atonement or cleansing for, for dirt, for things which contaminate the soul. This, of course, fits in to the man's general perspective on the relationship between the pure soul with the sense of this world and is necessarily contaminated by its contact with the world, but nonetheless retains its connection to the pure, divine, the source from which it comes. And its goal in life, and God's goal in life, is to return the soul to its pure and holy origins. I would today like to take up a different approach altogether, one that I think you'll see the parallels between it and the Ramban. In a way, it's using the Ramban's categories, but turning them on its head, and an approach which is, in fact, immensely, immensely influential. Not so much directly. The person I'm going to quote is Rav Chastai Kreskas, who was not well-read, not often read directly in later generations, but in this particular case, I think his influence uh, will be clear. Rav Chastai wrote a book called Or Hashem. Rav Chastai was probably the last truly great Spanish philosopher. 
He died in the beginning of the 15th century, 1411. He had an interesting personal personal life. He was very close to the king. He lived in Saragossa. He was the rabbi of Saragossa in 1391 when riots, anti-Jewish riots, spread throughout Spain. His son, in fact, was killed. He was then subsequently appointed by the king to, to rebuild the Jewish community, something which, frankly, was never fully, fully done. And, of course, 100 years later, the Jews were expelled from Spain. Rav Chastai's approach to the problem of evil is based on what he says is one basic principle, which he has to state in the beginning. And once he states this, he believes everything else will fall into place. The principle he states is a moral, psychological principle. And it, in his words, it's as follows. Shema'asim yiknu tchunot kvuot banefesh v'kol shekein sheyechasku otam imhem nimtsaim mishekfa. The principle states that actions bring about good qualities in the soul and surely they strengthen or develop those qualities if those qualities already exist. This, Rav Chastai says, is the most important principle of understanding why evil does not appear to be connected to previous sin. Unlike the Ramban who says, it is connected, I'll, I'll show you somehow that it's connected, Rav Chastai says it isn't connected, at least not always, but there's another principle involved, one which in fact explains why specifically certain kinds of suffering and certain kinds perhaps of evil apply and occur specifically to the people who we think are most deserving of reward, of benefit, and of happiness. The psychological basis for the principle would appear not to be revolutionary. It is true that, I think we all know this, that the actions that a person does, a person habitually engages in certain activities, this affects his personality, develops his personality in the direction of the actions which he is doing. For instance, a, an example that's actually quoted widely, it's, it's, it's mentioned in the Sefer HaChinuch, which was written before of Chastai Kreskas, why does God, the Sefer HaChinuch asks, command us to give charity? Is the reason because God is worried about poor people and commands us to give charity so the poor people should have money. Chinuch basically says, if that were true, then God should give them money. Why does he need us to do it for him? He says, no, on the contrary. God commands us to give charity so that we should be merciful. Because the way to become merciful, the way to have a personality of pity and mercy and empathy for others is by taking care of them. He who gives Tzedakah, he who gives charity, will become, by virtue of the actions he does, more more merciful. He will inculcate within himself the quality of rachamim, of mercy. And Rav Chastai says this is, in fact, the principle of the entire Torah. The Torah does not address man directly and say, have a good character. The Torah tells us to do actions, because actions develop character and not the reverse. And I stress not the reverse because the Ramban, in a famous passage in the commentary to the Akedah, to Akedat Yitzchak in Bereshit, says the exact opposite. He says, God 
sends trials. The word in Hebrew is Nisayon. And God tried Avraham. And the question that all commentators ask is, why would God try or test a human being? Normally one gives a test in order that the tester should know something about he who is taking the test. Right? A teacher gives a test because he wants to know how well his students are doing. But God doesn't need to give a test in order to know how well his students are doing. Since God knows. So what is the purpose of Elohim Nisat Avraham? And the Ramban's answer in the commentary to the Torah is that God wishes to bring out from the potential quality of the human personality he wants to reach a point where the person is expressing that those qualities in action. Why God wants actions, not just personality, is not explicitly explained by the Ramban. You have to figure that out on your own. But I think the point here is that the Ramban sees the relationship between what he calls Lev Tov, the good heart, good personality, and Ma'asim Tovim as the first is the cause of the second. The first is the leads to the expression. It's expressed in the second. And therefore, a person has a certain character, which Ramban does not ask himself how he achieved. And now, God will try him, which could be seen as a form of suffering. Undoubtedly, Avraham Avinu suffered as he marched for three days with his son towards what he believed would be his son's death on Har Maria. But that suffering was necessary according to the Ramban in order that Avraham should express his Yirat Hashem or Avat Hashem, his commitment to God in a real action and not merely have it in his heart. Rav Chastai turns this equation on its head and he says explicitly in the section I'm quoting about the Akedah, about Avraham and Yitzchak. He says that God told Avraham to sacrifice his son not to express Avraham's Yirat Hashem, but to cause Avraham's Yirat Hashem. And his proof is the Pasuk that says that after the Akedah, the angel says to Avraham, Ata yadati kirei Elohim ata. Now I know that you are fear, fearing, God-fearing, fearing of God. And the famous question in the Middle Ages would be, what do you mean now I know? Surely God knew beforehand. And Rav Chastai's answer is that no, God didn't know beforehand because it wasn't true. Because Abraham was not God-fearing, not God-fearing on that level beforehand. Only by en- uh, enduring the experience of having to take Yitzchak up the mountain, of taking the knife in his hand and preparing himself, God forbid, to kill Yitzchak, only through that experience did Abraham indeed reach the level of Yerat Hashem of which God says, Now I know that you are God-fearing because now you have become God-fearing beforehand you weren't. What Rav Chasta has introduced into Jewish philosophy is the nature of development. We don't say what a person is, let him do actions to express his personality. We're saying let a person do actions in order to develop a personality that's compatible and compatible with the actions that he's doing. And although psychologically, I think we all know this is true, metaphysically, it's not easy to understand how it could be true. Where does the quality, the virtue that is being developed, where does it come from? If it wasn't present in man beforehand, then where does it come from? And Rav Chastai is saying it's not present in man beforehand. 
or else God would have seen it. What the Ramban speaks of, potential qualities being expressed, Rav Chaskai speaks of future qualities being developed. We're not going to discuss the metaphysics of how this can take place, for the simple reason that it's not discussed by Rav Chastai either. But Rav Chastai uses this to explain suffering in general. Because man must develop. And Rav Chastai has a whole theory that explains that God's purpose in the world is to lead men to better themselves, to bring men closer to God. And the only way you can become closer to God is to develop a better soul, develop a better personality, to become better, more good, more charitable, more merciful, more brave. Any, any human quality that's a virtue has to be developed. And you have to strive to transcend the state you were in beforehand. How does God do this? How does God lead us to better ourselves? And if Chastai says, you can't do that by saying, I want to be better. The way to become better is not to think about good. The way to become better is to do things. And these things that we do may very well involve suffering. In fact, I suspect that Chastai believes that they will necessarily involve suffering because the only reason why this action makes us a better person is because it's difficult. It's because we're called upon not merely to express what we already do. If a person has, let's say, a certain level of, 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 of charity, he, he, he pities people... I don't know how to express this exactly, but quantitatively, give him a 25. That's, that's his mark. He has 25 uh, units of pity. And then he gives charity, which is expresses that. He gives him $25 or whatever the, the amount of, of effort on his part that simply naturally flows from his, uh, from, his, from his personality. He won't achieve a higher level. He has to give more. He has to feel more. He has to overcome a greater obstacle so that then... He becomes a person who pities and has mercy and has empathy on a higher level than he had before. That by nature will be to some extent painful because it's calling upon him to do that which is not easy, which doesn't flow from his personality, but in fact reflects a higher personality than he indeed has. The case in discussion, the case of Amavinu, is an extreme but nonetheless typical, typical but extreme uh, example of that principle. Ahavat Hashem, or Yirat Hashem, Rav Chastai does not distinguish, the Pasuk of course says, Yirat Hashem, I now know that you are God-fearing, but for Rav Chastai, as for the Ramam, as for many Rishonim when discussing the Akedah, they don't actually distinguish between love of God and fear of God. The, the, the quality that God is looking for here is the quality in which one sacrifices for God. And sacrifices, by definition, of course, involve suffering, involve giving something up, something valuable, something dear up for a greater principle. But the only way to achieve the willingness to sacrifice is to actually sacrifice. And so therefore, if we were living in a perfect world, there would be no suffering. But it's not sin which causes suffering, but merely imperfection. Imperfection isn't sin, at least not in the normal sense. Any person is imperfect because he's merely a person. He's not God. But God wants you to become closer to God, to become more God-like. And therefore, your imperfection, your lack of perfection, your lack of not being God, creates a necessity to become more like God. And that necessity can only be met through a physical, psychological activity, which by definition involves some suffering. 
From this principle in Rav Chastain, so later commentators and philosophers, and in fact not merely Jewish philosophers, because the idea uh, uh, becomes quite common at later times, will point out that certain specific qualities always involve overcoming. For instance, the quality of givura, of bravery, of fortitude. If the only way to achieve bravery is to express bravery, the only way to express bravery is to have something threaten you and nonetheless stand up to it. If there's no evil in the world, no danger, there can't be bravery according to Rav Chastai's psychological principle because no one will be brave where he's never had to experience standing up to danger. Or in the original example I mentioned, the example that's taken from Sefer Chinuch, no one will be merciful unless there is some misery, some need, some poor, some poverty to which his mercy is expressed. If there is no misery in the world, there is also no, there is also no mercy. And how much misery need there be to achieve mercy? Well, since mercy is an infinite quality, mercy is the mercy of God, and your mercy is always less than that, so to achieve the next step in mercy, one needs continually to meet misery, and if we take this to its extreme, you'll have to meet greater and greater degrees of misery in order to achieve greater and greater degrees of mercy. The upshot of this is that, and this is actually similar to the Ramban, not merely is it always tzaddik v'tovlo, rasha v'ralo, that the righteous benefit and the sinners suffer, but it's almost the opposite. They who are sinners, why should they suffer? God has no purpose in challenging them to improve because they're not on the path of improvement. As Rav Chastai says, this whole principle of God bringing you closer to Him applies to those who have a certain measure of love of God. And therefore God loves them and, and He's trying to help them. But those who are completely detached from God, the, the attitude of Chast I think would be most appropriate would be to be ignored by God. And ignored by God means they don't have to suffer either. But specifically because Avraham Avinu is so great, therefore God is especially interested in, in accelerating His path to become even closer to God. And therefore, perhaps paradoxically, perhaps even ironically, and perhaps even sorrowfully, specifically Avraham Avinu faces the greatest challenge and perhaps the greatest suffering that is described in the, in the Torah. Now, lest we think that by standing the relationship between suffering and righteousness on its head, Rav Chastai has a simple solution to everything. Rav Chastai admits, and in this sense he is different than the Ramban, he has an eclectic attitude. He says everything is true. It's also true that justice is a good. So frankly, evil should be rewarded with suffering. In other words, a penalty. Have a penalty of suffering. And frankly, righteousness, justice is also a good. God should do good. He should uh, reward the righteous. But it's not the main, it's not the main uh, element in God's attitude towards the world. God's attitude towards the world is to benefit the world, and the benefit to the world is by bringing the world closer to God. What's interesting about this approach to the problem of evil is that in principle, and I stress in principle, it'll always work. Because no matter how great an evil or suffering we find, 
Rav Chastai is able to answer, and I stress theoretically he's able to answer, well, the greater the suffering, the greater the good that could come out of it. Because facing up to that suffering, or fixing that suffering, or even surviving that suffering, will in fact bring out in the personality that, that went ahead and, and fought and struggled with that suffering, will bring about in that personality greater and greater good qualities. And you can never say, though, but this suffering is too great, because no matter how great the suffering is, there'll be a greater good, he's defined it, there'll be a greater good parallel. The greater the suffering, the greater the good. I stress theoretically, because like all uh, theodicies, all theories to explain God's actions in the world, they present principles to the person who is suffering, to the person who is being engulfed by suffering, I think the theories can help, but they don't provide the answer. The answer has to be found within and not within the books. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book on the palm of evil called The Palm of Pain, uh, writes in the very first pages, he says, I'm not writing about my suffering or about your suffering, and that's why it's very easy, easy for me to write it. I think I'm writing good philosophy. However, I'll be the first to admit that I don't know whether or not this would provide an existential answer for myself while I were I suffering. And that's an important point. It's an important point to mention. We're dealing in theory. Uh, the existential existence of the sufferer is a different, it's not a different question, but it's a different experience. If you take philosophy seriously, then you tend to believe that it can help. It can help the sufferer. But the, 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 the background to the problem of evil in Jewish philosophy was the question it posed to the theory of God. Can we believe in God if God is responsible for all this evil? And if Chassay says, yes, you can, because it makes sense that God should be responsible for all this evil. Now, another difference between the Ramban and Rav Chassay. Ramban's theory of, 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 of suffering is really an answer to a question. The world doesn't seem right. We see there is suffering and it's not justified. Well, not just it is justified. Now you can go back to what you were doing beforehand. Rav Chassay's theory of suffering is not merely an answer to the question called the problem of evil. It's a theory of existence. It's part and parcel of a theory that explains not merely how can I believe in God despite the evil, but how I should relate to evil. Rav says when you meet evil, when you meet suffering, you should see it. It's there as a challenge. It's a cause of what will be, not a response to what was. The Ramban, like the Ramban, speaks of suffering as a response to a previous existence, to a previous action. That's why, as I mentioned last week, Torah Ibu, kind of, uh, of transmigration of souls. If it's a response to what took place, it could be a response to what took place in a previous life or in a previous existence for the soul. But for Chastai, the cause of suffering is what will be, not what was. Suffering exists and is justified not by previous sin, but by future virtue. And if it's, an, it's a theory of, of everything that happens, when we walk through life, Rav Chastai says, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering is one particular and perhaps common, but nonetheless one part of a general theory that says we are facing God and God is thinking of ways to not let us rest, to keep us on the road to self-perfection, which might involve sometimes suffering, it might involve sometimes pleasure, it always will involve 
a challenge. It would always involve getting you to transcend yourself, to be more than what you are, not to be true to yourself, as as uh, as is found in the Shakespearean play Hamlet. To yourself be true, but to your future be true. Be not honest with what you are, but be greater than yourself. And because of the psychological principle that says that one cannot directly be greater than oneself, God sets for us situations which change our lives by calling upon us to act in a certain manner. Extending this further, this becomes a theory of Torah, because Torah consists of actions and not a philosophy, not even direct morality. There's very little, some, but there's very little direct morality in Torah. The Torah says, be good. Feel for other people. Those few exceptions, in fact, evince questions in the Mephashim. What does it mean? You should love your fellow men. What are you supposed to do? And Chazal say it means act in a certain manner. means do not do unto others what you do not want them to do unto you. Hillel, Hillel's definition of But basically the Torah consists of actions. Act, do this, do that, do this, do that. And if Chazal is saying yes, because that's the way in which personality develops. The Torah is really not interested in the actions themselves. That, Rav Chasta admits, the Torah is interested in personality. Personality, in the end, will be he who will dwell in the world to come next to and close to God. But the only way to achieve personality, to achieve a developing personality, is by action. Therefore, God doesn't even speak to the personality, or at least not usually, but speaks directly to the actions of, of the person. A question for Rav Chastai would be if we could find cases of suffering that could not possibly result in a better personality. Now we're not going to find a case like that in this world, but Rav Chastai says, if karet, the punishment mentioned in the Torah of being cut off, means being cut off in this world and the next world, then nothing could come out of it. If it's the end of the soul, then that's a punishment which is not, or a, 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 a suffering. It's an action of God which is not conditioned to producing a better soul. And if Chasta admits that that's true, he says it's possible that there are some souls on which God has given up. They can't be bettered by the challenges of this world. And therefore, they're simply cut off. They're not, they're not punished. They're not tortured. They're cut off. They're ended. Because the only reason to exist is to become closer to God. He suggests another answer. Rafa is very, uh, it, it's very typical of him to have three, four, or five different answers for the same question because, as I said, he's eclectic. He believes that only by understanding all the possibilities, God has a lot of methods to achieve the same goal. So he says, well, it's possible that sometimes other people benefit by seeing the suffering of a person. That has to be justified by justice in his case. In other words, he also has to have some benefit from it. But it could be that if you ask me ultimately what comes out of this, what comes out of it is that other people will have their souls be developed, will develop their own souls in the light of God because of it. But again, he says, it's a little bit hard to say that in the world to come. We don't know that much about the world to come, but Will karet of one soul benefit other souls? 
It doesn't seem it doesn't seem likely. It's hard to imagine a context in which that would be true. Again, this doesn't bother Rav Chastai so much. He's not saying I'm giving you a total theory of every single case. I'm explaining to you why tzaddik veralo is not an anomaly and is not a question on God's justice. On the contrary, since he's a tzaddik, he has to keep moving. He has to keep moving. Something is going to happen to him. Rav Chastai's discussion reminds us, he doesn't quote this, reminds us of a Gemara at the end of Masechet Moed Katan. There's an entire chapter which discusses the laws of death and mourning. And the Gemara ends with a, indeed, atypical statement about the world to come. The Gemara ends with a statement, Tzadikim ein lehem menucha afilu la'atid lavo. That the righteous will not rest, do not, do not receive rest, do not merit a, a, a retirement. You don't retire if you're a tzaddik. They do not have peace and rest even in the world to come, even in the future world. And what they seem to be suggesting is that specifically, perhaps, mediocre people will receive peace and rest in the world to come. They've done the best they can and now they can rest on their laurels. But Sadiqim will not rest in the world to come because you can get more out of them. So that therefore, although we don't know how this could exactly take place, but even in the world to come, they will keep moving, they will have to keep, they will have to keep moving. Same thing is suggested by the famous Ma'amar Chazal quoted by Rashi in the beginning of Pashad Vayeshev, Bikesh Yaakov Lashavet B'Shalva, Yaakov had a rough life, he came back to Israel, he thought now he gets to enjoy life. Yaakov washed, wished to live in peace, B'Shalva. Miyad Kafatzalav Ogzosho Yosef, immediately. Stresses on the word immediately. It's impossible. How can you possibly rest in this world? Immediately, he had the problems associated with Yosef. No explanation of what is expected from Yaakov, but the point is, tzaddikim, dafka, specifically tzaddikim, do not have do not have rest, and suffering and rest here apparently should be taken as opposites. Rest, good, sweet life, Florida vacation, uh, condo in Palm Beach. That's not for the Sadiqim. For the Sadiqim there will remain struggle and something very close to what we call Sadiq Virala. This ends our discussion of the Palm of Evil. Obviously, there is much, much more which could or should be said. This entire discussion that I mentioned of Chastai Kreskas is even shorter, much shorter than that of the Ramban. The Ramban had like 15 pages in Sefer Torah to Adam. Of Chastai's discussion is the, the the positive side discussion is all of three pages long. He introduced that with an entire chapter discussing all the wrong answers that he knew to the palm of evil. But his final answer is no more than three pages. He p- provides a principle. The development of this principle will would and will require a great deal of elaboration, which in fact does take place profusely in later in later philosophic literature. From this discussion of Two weeks ago, Hashkacha, in the last two weeks, the Palm of Evil, we will continue next week widening the role, widening the scope even more to what is the purpose, the final purpose of man's existence. And we will discuss two approaches to this, to this question. The approach of the Rambam, which is Yidi Atashem, knowledge, knowledge of God,
and the approach of Rav Chastai Kreskas, which is heavily indebted, in this case, to the Ramban, and that is Ahavat Hashem, the love of God. And now for today's Halacha Yomit. The language of the Shulchan Aruch is Nashim v'avadim p'turim mikriyat shma mipnei shuhu mitzvat asei shazman grama. This is uh, an un, uh, uncontested halacha. Kriyat Shema is a mitzvah asay shehazman grama, a time-dependent mitzvah, and therefore women are exempt from mitzvah Kriyat Shema. On this, the Shulchan Aruch, the Mechaber adds, "Benachonu lelamdam sheikablu alehem all nochut shemayim." But it's correct, it is right, it is proper that women should accept upon themselves the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. To which the Ramah adds, "Bishi karul fachot pasuk rishon," and they should read. They should read at least the first pasuk. This is based on a statement in the Beit Yosef. The Beit Yosef quotes from the Sefer Oel Moed, which is a Rishonic halachic work, who says that even though women are patur from Kriyat Shema, but they are obligated, they are obligated in the acceptance of the unity of God, the Kabbalat Hayichud which is the first Pasuk. And the Beit Yosef quotes that, doesn't argue with it, and then Shulchan Aruch writes what, what I quoted. It's proper to teach them to accept upon themselves the yoke of heaven. There's a huge discussion in the Achronim as to whether or not the intention of the Beit Yosef is to say the women are obligated to read at least the first Pasuk, or the language seems to be a lot less categorical, it is proper for them to accept upon themselves the yoke of the kingdom of heaven and quoting the Rama, and therefore they should say the first pasuk. I think the explanation of the Beit Yosef's attitude here is really very simple. Kriyat Shema has within it two different mitzvot. There is one, a technical mitzvah, to read this pasha, the first pasuk, the first pasha, the two, first two pashayot, different opinions in the Rishonim, but there's a mitzvah to read these things meaning the Pasha that we're dealing with, that's a mitzvah to read, to say certain words. There's another mitzvah, which the Rambam, in fact, lists in the Sefer Mitzvah as an independent mitzvah, no connection to Kriyat Shema, called Yichud. Remember, the language of the Olmoid was Kabbalat HaYichud, the unity of God. Now, the unity of God is not a mitzvah to read a Pasuk in the Torah. It's a mitzvah that's basically uh, accomplished and fulfilled in one's heart. It's a, it's a, it's a mitzvah of belief. And that's why the Ram has in the very, the very, very beginning of Sefer Mitzvot, because it's a basic, basic, essential mitzvah. But even mitzvot of belief, one has to do them in some way. This is especially true, if I can comment, based on the principle in the Shia today, in the philosophy Shia. Actions create hearts, even without that philosophical basis. How does one go about doing Yichud? The Pasuk of Kriyat Shema is a fulfillment, not an obligation to say Kriyat Shema in order to unify God, to accept the yoke of heaven, but it's a fulfillment in the acceptance of the yoke of heaven. And I think this is what the Beit Yosef understood from the Owen Moed statement. He's not arguing or disagreeing. He's saying what the Owen Moed said is that women are patur from the technical mitzvah of Kriyat Shema, which has a time, by day and by night, by morning and by evening, and therefore women are exempt. 
But the mitzvah of Yichud, which is found in the Pasuk, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Echad, you have to believe this. That's not a time-dependent mitzvah. We're not put on that late at night or in the afternoon. You're obligating that at all times. And therefore, women have to do that. The Beit Yosef then divides. Well, what does that mean? If they have to do that, what should they do? It would be really a good idea if they would say Kriyat Shema, at least one Pasuk, as the Ramah, as the Ramah, as the Ramah states. But they don't have to say this Pasuk, they can do it some other way. But this is the way the Jews go about reminding themselves of Mitzvah Yichud. And therefore, this sort of in-between language of the, of the, of the Mechaber. The Olnoid is correct. Women are obligated in Yichud, and therefore it is proper that they should accept upon themselves or train themselves to every day say at least one pasuk of, uh, of Kriyat Shema. A second question relates to the Birkot Kriyat Shema. According to most poskim, Birkot Kriyat Shema are also a time-dependent recitation. At the same time, it's Kriyat Shema, which means either once by day and once by night, or perhaps even only in the morning and not in the afternoon, etc. So therefore, women would be uh, exempt from Birkot Kriyat Shema. There are some poskim who think this might not be true. As I mentioned, when we talked about it uh, a couple of days ago, it's possible that Birkot Kriyat Shema are not actually, despite the name, Birkot Kriyat Shema. They're not really Birkot on Kriyat Shema. They're independent Birkot, which are merely associated with Kriyat Shema, and therefore the time is in fact all day. And, if we do not accept the Shagat, Ay- the Shagat Ayeh's argument that these mitzvot, Kriyat Shema and Birkot Kriyat Shema, are two different mitzvot, one of which is only by day and not by night, and one of which is by night and not by day, then it could be the Pekot Kriyat Shema or Mitzvah Tasei She'ein Azman Krama. It's not a time-dependent mitzvah, and women are obligated. But most poskim really do conclude the women are exempt from saying these Pekot. May they say these Pekot? So there's a basic argument between the Balei Atasvot and the Rambam as to whether women are allowed or permitted to make a bracha on those mitzvot which they're exempt from. For instance, Shofar, Lulav, mitzvot which are time-dependent, but surely a woman is allowed to take the lulav or to hear the shofar, but may she make a bracha on it? The Ramam says no, and Tosfat Rabbein Utam says yes. Halacha Lema'isa, all Ashkenazim follow the opinion of the Tosfat, which is quoted in the Ramah, and many Sfadim, but not all, follow the opinion of the Rambam, which is accepted by the, by the Mechaber. However, in this particular case, there's a, further, there's a further twist. Why are women not permitted, according to the Rambam, to make a bracha on a mitzvah from which they are exempt? There are two possible reasons. One would be because any bracha which is not necessary should not be made. We call it bracha she'enot tzricha, making brachot stam, just like that, without a valid obligation, should not be done. The second reason is because it makes no sense. The brachot mitzvah say vitzivanu. We, we bless God who has commanded us. If you have not been commanded, meaning obligated, you cannot say that. Now, the brachot that we're talking about are not birkot mitzvah. At least not in their language. And according to most poskim, are not birkot mitzvah at all. They're not birkot and kriyat The brachot, which are not on a mitzvah, which is time-dependent, the brachot themselves are time-dependent. So according to Rabbeinu Tam and the Tosfot, women can do anything. They can obligate themselves to anything they want. But even according to the other opinion, it says that women should not make a berkat mitzvah. It's very conceivable that the reason is, and this is what the Rush argues, 
because they cannot say Vitzivanu, but in Bekot Kriyachma there is no Vitzivanu. You're blessing God who has created the, the sun and the moon. You're blessing God who has given Torah to Amisa. You're blessing God who has redeemed the Jews from Egypt and has given us the concept of Gula. These things have nothing to do with time and nothing to do with women or men. And therefore, although technically women might indeed be exempt, but there should not be any problem for them to accept it upon themselves and to make the Bukha. This was the opinion of Rashlom Zaman Orbach, specifically addressing people who follow the Mechaber's opinion, uh, uh, Oriental Sfaradim, as opposed to Moroccan Sfaradim. Uh, and he said, nonetheless, there's no problem to make the Bukha. The Rabbi Yosef has expressed many times his opposition to this opinion, and he says that women, namely Svadi women, who accept the opinion of the Mechaber, are not permitted are not permitted to make um, to make uh, to say any any bracha which are not obligated, including berakot of kriyachma. So again, Allah Maisa, uh, This is also the common practice, is that women in Ashkenazi uh, tradition uh, do say berakot kriyachma, uh, as well as certain Svaradi congregations as well, communities as well, and according to many poskim, anyone even one who accepts the Mechaber in general about Bekot HaMitzvah, uh, can make, can say Bekot Kriyachma. There is an opinion most forcibly expressed by Rabbi Yosef, which is, which is opposed. And that's it for today. You've been listening to KMTT. This is Ezra Bik, wishing you call Tov. We'll be back tomorrow, the share of Arab Binyamin Tavori, the weekly mitzvah. Until then, Enjoy the Torah you've learned. Have a nice day. This is KMTT. Ki mitzion tetzei Torah udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.